0: My apologies.
1: I was waiting, Scott, to see if you were going to say anything else. No, it's like old times. I'm welcome, speaking over the intro again. Yeah, welcome back to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street, the Barbie edition. How about that?
0: Based on what you're wearing, <laughs> it is definitely the Barbie edition. I
1: have on the brightest pink shirt, and which is weird because-
0: pinkest. Kink shirt.
1: My wardrobe is usually black on black. Right. I have a lot of black clothing.
0: Yeah, doing that later in life goth thing that you do.
1: Apparently so. Yeah. But the, I have a very bright pink shirt on today.
2: I had one about the same color on yesterday to go see Barbie, but I'm the same way. I'm My whole closet's black. And then, so that pink shirt stood out really <laughs> yeah. well. And mine does too. Yeah. I can easily find it.
0: I'll bet it didn't stand out so much at the movie theater. Probably not. No. And walking yesterday. like
1: through the mall like... The, uh, this lady at the store was like y'all go into the movies
2: right I mean,
0: yeah. we were
1: like, apparently that's the thing now if you go see the barbie movie you must wear pink most of the people in our theater right. were in some form of pink. you too. must wear pink
0: consider yeah. that a public service announcement
1: <laughs> yes yes from your friends here at true crime on easy street mm-hmm. my name is kelly turner and i'm not a doctor
0: scott Wright, mediocre journalist
1: katie gibbons not a lawyer So what's going on today? What's, what's, did you have a good vacation? First of all, last week, Scott. Me? Yeah. You know, we did. Did I have
0: a vacation? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, you did. We, we, we did a rerun. We did. This past week.
1: You know what? I listened to the rerun and we nailed it.
0: Did we? I haven't listened to it yet. I'm behind this week. I took a, an entire week's vacation. We
1: nailed it. I know. I wasn't
2: expecting it. Um, I was a little nervous because it's an older one that we did. <clears throat> Me too. I had to Honestly, search yeah. for the audio to get to pull it. And, yeah. But I was like, oh, nice.
0: It's from 21. That right. was just about the time we finally figured out what we were doing.
1: We, yeah.
0: We were feeling around in the dark there for a little while. But Bissell was one of those where we kind of established mm-hmm. a way to do the whole thing. That has stuck with us since then, I think. Yeah. And we were still, in large part,
1: we were still talking about live shows on there, but we don't do those anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. that's just for your, that's for the, we do that for the people.
0: Yeah. <laughs> for both people who came.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, we just uh, refrain from that now. And schedules got a little crazy. Like, it did. I'm in this school is true. all the time. And so, what goes on on Wednesday nights at Easy Street now, since we are not, um, doing live shows, I think it'd be a good time to promote what is going on. That is a great question. I think it Wednesday really is. Varies.
0: Yeah, I think Wednesday's a night that Shane is still. He's got some various. ideas on the wall that that he's. Yeah, yeah he's sometimes moving Shane will around. play
2: the piano. Yeah, sometimes <sighs> you can just come play a little trivia
0: on the. On the uh, yeah, yeah, on the Buzz Time tablets. Those right? are fun. I love those. I do
1: love those. You can come up with a cool name, and it'll be on the screen. Mm-hmm. Or That's an
0: awesome. uncool name like I have. Shane and I played trivia yesterday. He beat me both times. You can't so play I'm not trivia playing anymore. Any
1: what's time? your What's your name on there? Steeler. It is Steeler with an A. Like steel, like a thief.
0: Yeah. Like the Get Steelers. I was true crime when true crime wasn't cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know his
0: obsession with the Steelers? Yeah. Yes, I do. Something to do
2: with that.
1: I do. I see that yeah. on your phone now. Mm-hmm. He's, he, has a, he has a Steelers, what do you call that?
2: What well, is
0: the little thing on the back, the little knob that pop, pops out? Pop socket. Yeah, the pop socket. Pop so- yeah. socket. So I can Scott. hold it without dropping it. And I found a Steelers logo that exactly fits the diameter of the pop socket. Actually, and I found three of them, and I'm still on decal number one. so, and so
1: what model of phone yes. do you have?
0: This is a 12, I think. An oh, Apple 12. when
1: did you get a 12?
2: I've
0: had it for a couple of years now.
1: That's like the mini
0: version phone. Yeah, the mini. Phone. It's a tiny so one. So I need
2: y'all to set, I need to set the scene.
0: Scott <laughs> it, has
2: the worst <laughs> eyesight. Yeah. Big time. And the smallest phone. Yeah. He does. I have he to does. hold it
0: really close to my face, but it fits in my pocket, and that's what I like about this.
2: And wow. then a pop socket to help him hold world's smallest i haven't dropped it yet the pop socket takes up the whole back of the phone. it does
0: yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great that is great all right so what else goes on at easy street throughout the week i feel like we should you know give some love to our we should
0: at long last right yeah finally all this time
1: after all this time bingo (coughs) is a huge hit
0: yep tuesday nights
1: on easy street I played bingo for the first time
0: ever in your life. Well, oh. at Easy Street. Okay.
1: On Easy Street. Be more specific. And I had a great time. I did not win, mm-hmm. but that's okay. Yes. I still had yeah. fun. I've it never so won fun. either.
2: There's
0: uh, nor car- have I. There's
2: karaoke on Thursdays. So. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And then live music every Friday and Saturday. Every Friday Saturday. Well, what do you know? What is this weekend? This weekend, Friday night it?
2: is the Motown show. Oh, that's right. Motown. Yeah. So you'll be listening to this on Wednesday. So. Thursday nights karaoke, Friday nights, the Motown show. It is a ticketed event. Um, Tickets may be sold out by the time you hear this. Mm -hmm. There may be a couple available at the door.
0: But check but and I, see. Yeah, I wouldn't. Don't try to just walk it. up and,
1: yeah. and go to the Motown show. Go online. Get your ticket. Yeah, or
0: call, uh, you out. can call 494-8882. That's the number at Easy Street.
1: And they'll tell you to go online and get your ticket.
0: Okay, never mind. Skip <laughs> that.
1: Just what web what, what address do I go to to get my uh, It ticket?
2: is It um, is, there's a link on the Facebook page, but it's Ticket okay. Leap. It's a okay. Ticket okay. Leap site. Okay, so, so go
1: to the Facebook page and click on the mm-hmm. link.
0: Yeah, it's going to say Ticket Leap. And at the end, it's going to be, I know it's going to be slash Motown 2.
1: Yes, easy street dot the Motown second. 2 or something. Okay. Yeah. And uh, if you remember, our special guest from the John Ramsey episode, mm-hmm. Jeannie Hatmaker, yep. is one of the lead singers she for sure this is. Motown show. She has an incredible voice, so you should yeah. check it out.
0: And I've already seen the show one time, and it is amazing. So if you haven't seen it, um, they really pull out all the stops. They rehearsed this show for months before they did it the first time. Mm-hmm. And I remember Shane and, and me talking why do all that work and just do it one time I think Shane said so that's why they're doing another show and they may do it again I mean if well, they this had one's... a lot
2: of um, people asking about it because yeah. a lot of people didn't get tickets the first time around that wanted to see it so keep
0: doing it as many times as people will buy tickets they're for because it, it's amazing and they did a I mean they they you can tell they put in the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you see the show
1: awesome so everybody everybody's going to check that out this weekend do, uh, who is uh, Saturday night Saturday
2: night is Paris ah, everybody's
0: okay. always favorite band,
1: yes yep 80s big, music. So much fun. weekend.
2: Okay.
0: Yeah. All right.
1: Good times. Yeah. And you can go online on Facebook and see the daily specials that Easy Street has.
2: Yes. And we're now open for lunch on sa- Saturdays. Okay. That's All a right. new.
0: I was here. I think I was the first lunch customer yesterday.
2: You may have been. Mm-hmm. You may have been. So four o'clock Tuesday through Friday and then 11 o'clock on saturdays okay
1: that's great i love i like a day drinking on saturday Mm hey me too (laughs) (laughs) all right so here we are Uh we are back from vacation no one's going anywhere for a while now yes what are we talking about today
0: you guys ever seen the movie catch me if you can
1: Yes, that but it's been
0: a while. Okay, well, that guy's name is Frank Abignail Jr., and that's the guy we're going to talk to you about today, but before we do that, I have a shout-out. Okay. So, Cherokee County Sheriff's Deputy Will Bailey called me. He's a fan yes. of the show.
3: No Will Bailey, yes.
0: We all know Will. He called me earlier this week, and he said he had just listened to the George Wallace episode, Okay, and he wanted me to know that his father lives in Florida and is a friend of... It's either James or Josh Snively. Okay. And those are the sons of Cornelia Snively Wallace, who was George Wallace's second wife. If you remember when we told you about after he was shot, a woman in a yellow dress flung her body on top of him. Mm -hmm. That was Cornelia Snively Wallace.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. And so Will's father
0: lives beside... Her son. One of them. Yeah, they, one of the sons. I forget which can't one.
1: get the name right. I didn't
0: want to call him again and admit that I wasn't <laughs> listening close enough the first time. And now I've told everybody. Mediocre. <laughs> yes. Should've Y'all called. think we're kidding. One of the Snively brothers. <laughs> um, but he said, uh, Will just briefly said that uh, the Mr. Snively has told his father that he does not have fond memories of living in the governor's mansion, that George Wallace was not one of his favorite people in the world, and he just left it at that.
1: Okay. So see, But anyway, l-
0: uh, we'll listen heard to the it show from
1: someone who had <clears throat> direct contact yeah. with
0: George, George Wallace Wilson. was an asshole. I'm paraphrasing. Shocker. Yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> color me shocked. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right, one more question before we get started. I'm curious about this because we're going to talk about a teenager who got himself into a lot of trouble, so I'm curious as much as you guys want to go into it. What's the most trouble you ever got into as a teenager? Kelly. Hmm. Katie, you be thinking over there.
1: I, I, I know. Mm.
0: Okay. Oh, she <laughs> she go. go ahead, Katie. Go ahead,
1: Katie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go ahead. If it's that good,
0: if it jumped right um, to your brain.
2: Yeah. Uh, I'll just paraphrase go ahead. and say that I was at a large party my senior year of high school that. The police had to show up at okay, and it was no good for anybody.
0: I understand. Oh, no. All right, that's so it, it, that's a pretty it typical was a, teenager yeah, story. A
2: very traumatizing event for me. In, Certainly, in my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had never gotten any trouble.
0: Right, Kelly. I,
2: I don't know. I don't remember.
0: Not really anything. I mean, I was I was late for curfew ten minutes once. I didn't get into trouble. I mean, I didn't really do. Yeah,
1: yeah, same. The first time I ever got drunk,
0: I was on my senior trip, so I didn't get into Mm -hmm. a lot of trouble.
1: Yeah, I didn't as um, a teenager. Let me just say this: I was not perfect, because you know my dad listens to this. (laughs) 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 I was not perfect. Um, When I was not perfect, I was pretty good at hiding it. Okay, Uh, but I never got into big trouble, and I never really did anything that was like you know, worth getting never got into anything
0: that you couldn't bury under a rock. Is that what you're telling me?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Me either, I guess. Well, this guy that we're going to talk about today, he got into a lot more trouble as a teenager than any of the three of us, as all three of us put together, did probably have in our whole lives all added together. (laughs) Probably. I don't know. There was that one time. Never mind. That's not what we're here to talk about today.
1: (laughs) It's not the confessions show. Yeah.
0: No, let's don't do that. Oh, quickly, because I promised somebody that I would do this. I did see Oppenheimer. Okay. Uh, this weekend it's amazing it's three hours long so go to the bathroom before you sit down but it's going to be nominated for a lot of awards and it's uh going to win probably every award that it's nominated for. now you
1: texted us about that movie yeah
0: what Uh name did you
1: first say
0: prometheus
1: oh yeah because i was like
0: that's the title of the book about oppenheimer it's american prometheus it took me a little while to figure that out too
1: we were thinking that was quite the jump for yeah. you to say
0: Prometheus, Prometheus.
1: and then we we're going what? And you're like, no, never mind. Oppenheimer. Yeah. Like, what?
0: Yeah, that was the title of the book.
1: But that makes sense. That yeah. that's a that at least is a sensible leap.
2: At least there. I looked that
0: up.
1: I had someone try to mansplain
2: to me the premise of the movie, and I was oh. like, I've been to a history class. I don't. I don't need <laughs> you. To, I, like, sure, I'd like to see the movie, but I don't need you to tell me who Oppenheimer was.
0: Wait, it wasn't me, was it? Nope. Okay, because I was afraid that it might have been, and here's why, because when I got back from the movies and I told Shane, who I saw in the restaurant, where I had just come from, he had no idea what I was talking about or that this movie even existed.
1: And I think there's a lot of really good actors in the movie. Yes, very
0: many. Uh, Emily Blunt's in it. uh, Matt Damon is in it. Um, Gary Oldman has a brief appearance in the film as President Harry Truman. Yeah, it's a really good film.
2: Yeah, Florence Pugh.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, Cillian, uh, uh, Cillian Murphy is the yeah, lead actor who you may know him from Peaky Blinders on yes. Netflix. Okay. He will win the Oscar for for best actor.
3: Okay, awesome. He did a
0: fantastic. So job.
1: we got we've got homework. We need to go see this movie. <clears throat> yes. Do we need to see it on the big screen? Is it worth the big screen, yeah. or can we Especially wait? And like, and I may have it. to wait
0: because
1: uh, you know that's a big deal. It, it costs a lot to go to movies. I don't.
0: I don't really remember a lot of scenes where I felt like.
1: You needed the big screen. I
0: had to have the big screen for I gotcha. it. I mean the sequence where the, the explosions take place mm-hmm. uh, they're handled in a very art artful way. Okay. So you don't need the explosion itself to convey what is happening. What is happening. I'll just I, gotcha. I don't want to spoil anything.
2: Yeah, but, yeah. My whole thing is just so long.
0: Yeah, three hours is like a long time.
2: If I go to the movies, I have to have a frozen coke. Mm-hmm. So at some point I've,
0: Understood. I mean, about two I hours
2: in, it. I've got to pee. Yeah. I
0: was able to not move out of oh. my chair for three hours, oh. but so I moved fun. immediately when the credits you know, rolled. <laughs>
1: back in the day, I went to see <laughs> Dances with Wolves that's and it three was hours. three hours yeah. and, and there was an intermission. Mm-hmm. That's, that. Not a bad, really I, I kind of wish there bit. had
0: been an intermission, you I know, five you minutes. gave you literally
1: a 15 minute intermission yeah. to go to the restroom, get, get something some popcorn whatever and get back in your seat.
2: All those old Start movies did. I remember Definitely. Ben
0: Hur in the 60s with Charlton Heston. It had uh, it had an intermission. Titanic. Titanic did, did it. Mm-hmm. It's been so long since I've seen Titanic, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's over 3 hours. I think you should do that.
1: Yeah. Anyway, let's bring back the intermission.
0: Could have sold some t-shirts in you the You heard lobby. it here first. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. You guys ready?
1: I think we'll so. Are you?
0: I am ready. Mark Twain said once that it is easier to fool people than to convince them that they have been fooled.
2: <laughs> that is brilliant.
0: Yeah. Uh, so when I began researching this story, <clears throat> I thought I had a pretty good idea of what today's story was going to sound like when we got to the end of it. And if you've read Frank Abagnale's 1980 book titled Catch Me If You Can or if you've seen the 2002 Steven Spielberg movie, those two, they pretty much run parallel to each other. There are a few differences in the film for... Uh, artistic sake and and for purposes of moving the story along, but they're both pretty similar. Um, In a speech that he gave in 1994,
3: Frank Abagnale summarized his life in a speech
0: that began this way. When I was 16, I successfully impersonated an airline pilot for two years. Then I became the chief pediatrician of a Georgia hospital for a year. At age 19, I passed the state bar exam in Louisiana and was eventually appointed assistant attorney general. At age 20, I became a college professor at BYU. I was a millionaire twice over before I was old enough to drink. That's him summarizing his life at the beginning of a speech that he gave in 1994. So it's before the film came out in 2002, but the book's been out for 14 years at this point.
1: The only thing, well... The-
0: there's a glimpse of the mind of the guy that we're going to talk about today.
1: It's hard. You, I I ping pong back and forth between thinking, wow, that's impressive. And oh my gosh, you you idiot. Yeah.
0: Yikes, that's horrible. What a terrible person you, you are. You
1: impersonate a pediatrician? <laughs> yeah, that's mm-hmm. the worst one. I mean, are oh, you what, an airline pilot too, yeah. of course. Yeah. Are you kidding me? I know. That, that's dangerous.
0: Sounds dangerous to me.
1: Anyways, I'll shut up. No, no,
0: that, please. Um, I don't
1: want to be the Karen.
0: No, today your job is to be the Karen. All
1: right, let's okay, do it. Run
0: with it, pink shirt. <clears throat> <laughs> so, in a Okay,
1: I, pop socket.
0: <laughs> there's, a, uh, there's an interview that Abagnale gives with the Australian version of 60 Minutes in the year 2019. He's attempting to sell another book that has come out at the time. And he said, he was asked about kind of what you just talked about. How could you get away with this? What? Didn't your conscience get the better of you? And in, in the interview, he says, yes, eventually... My conscience did get the better of me. He said, I don't think that I would have ever have done those things if I had been older and wiser and would not have just had that kid's imagination that I could do or be whatever I wanted. Because he was 16 when he started impersonating an airline pilot.
1: Who were his parents?
0: They were not the most helicopter... Like parents, we
1: that was that was a Karen question, wasn't it?
2: I'm I'm into this role now.
1: You know, I saw a quote the other day,
2: or it might have been a TikTok, I can't remember now. Um, that's it was like, I woke up one day and and my frontal cortex is fully developed and I can't have fun anymore. That's true, I just worry. And I used to, you know, and I didn't used to worry about anything, I could have all the fun in the world. I wake up in the middle of the night and think.
1: Oh my gosh, I'm terrified about this, mm-hmm. and I've never thought about it. Yeah, before. and at 19, mm. you were not.
0: Yeah, so I, yeah, absolutely. And I think Frank experienced a lot of that as he grew up. Uh, so in his story, in the story that we're going to tell you in the first half of this episode today, Abignale's story, the first pages in his book, we're already in the sky. When the story begins, he's 16. He's a master thief, and he's already in an airplane in his pilot's uniform on someone else's dime. Mm-hmm. The adventure is underway.
1: I mean, I can understand not being a helicopter parent, but your kid is on an airplane. They don't know where he is. Flying away. Yeah. Okay, they just don't know where he is. They just don't know. All right. Uh,
0: He said, Frank said in his book that he good-timed it in South America, the South Seas, the Orient, and Africa. He boasts that he uh, has been described by law enforcement and investigative reporters as the century's cleverest bum check passer, flim-flam artist, crook, and con man of Academy Award caliber. This guy is modest, if nothing else. Yeah. So Frank's father and mother met during World War II while his father was an American soldier stationed in France, which is where she was from. After the war, Frank Sr. opened a business in the upscale neighborhood of Bronxville, New York. Not to be confused with the Bronx, apparently. Yes, right. okay. By the time Frank Jr. was old enough to get his driver's license, his parents had gotten divorced. So Frank started his life of crime by skipping school after moving in with his father... To try and get attention from his parents, he was six feet tall, already 170 pounds. He looked like a grown man, his words. So he hopped in a stolen car with some high school buddies, and that was his first crime. But he got away with that. Dad got everybody. Their dad's got everybody off back then. You know how the juvenile system was. We've talked about this. For the first offense, if you're a juvenile, the judge will turn you over to your parents and say. Don't ever come back.
1: They'll dress you down. and right. You know, yeah. I'd We've, like to know how much
2: of a girl he looked like because I had a six-foot-tall 16-year-old living in my house. He doesn't look like a
0: grown right? man. Right, yeah.
2: Like, mm-hmm. And I know all of his friends, too. Like, I'm like, no, these are children.
0: Exactly. And now they're
1: 18, and they still look 16. Yeah. Yes. They, they have, yeah. Maybe one of these days.
2: I'm not,
0: not, every not once yet. in a while, I knew a guy in, in college. We were freshmen, and he looked, you know, he could pass for yeah. 22, 23. You do have
2: one every now and then. Yeah. But.
0: And maybe this was that guy, but I know what you mean. By and large, you would think, wait a minute, who is he fooling? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So as Frank said, uh, he was finding out that he wasn't a normal person with that ingrained sense of right and wrong and enough common sense for the good side to prevail. He was, in his words again, the type of person whose competitive instincts overrode all reason right or wrong, and consequences did not matter. Crime was a game to him, and success was the only outcome that was acceptable. This is the way he approached his life of crime. The first time Frank ever uh, flimflammed anyone, it was his father, and he was 15 years old. The way that Frank tells the story, he borrowed his dad's gas card and went down to the gas station and bought a set of tires and then gave them back to the attendant of the store in exchange for half of what they were worth in cash (laughs) so the attendant still had a set of tires to sell to the next guy who came along and frank had money in his pocket now of course it would eventually be his father who would be on the hook for what turned out to be thirty four hundred dollars in bad checks over a three-month period not bad checks but bad credit card charges Mm -hmm. over a three-month period but frank's father forgave him Although his mother was pissed about it, she demanded that he move back in with her. She still had legal custody, but Frank had been the one sibling out of four who was living with his father until this happened.
1: So she said, you're
2: coming home because I'm putting my thumb on you. Correct. So you have that many kids. You can, Sometimes, yeah, one does kind of get,
0: get mm-hmm.
3: lost. In <laughs>
0: right. So she thought she could keep him out of trouble better there. And so now we're in the summer of 1964. Frank is 16. He was born in 1948. Uh, one of the first... Documents that Frank Jr. forged was his driver's license when he made that 48 look like a 38, which made him 26 years old, legally speaking, or as far as that document is concerned, instead of 16 years old. And like I said, all of this took place in 1964. It was the year that the uh, Civil Rights Act was signed. The first ever Beatles performance on the Ed Sullivan Show was in 1964. Muhammad Ali was still Muhammad Ali for a few more months when he beat Sonny Liston to become the heavyweight champion. In 64. The World's Fair was held in Queens. Jack Ruby was found guilty in Dallas of shooting and killing Lee Harvey Oswald on live television. 1,000 students marched through Times Square in what came to be known as the first ever major student demonstra- uh, demonstration against the Vietnam War. And speaking of Vietnam, uh, Johnson was sending troops to Vietnam for the first time in bulk. It was the first time that there had been more than 20,000 American troops stationed in Vietnam, and that number would get up to half a million before it was all over with. But that was the first big escalation of Vietnam in 64. Mary Poppins was number one at the box office. And like I said, Lyndon Johnson, uh, he ran for president that year and defeated Barry Goldwater in November to win his first term. So that's when we are. That's 64 when all this is happening. So Frank has to move back home with his mother, and he doesn't like that for very long. So he runs off to New York City, where he figures he can disappear with his checkbook and his stolen credit card and make his own way, at least for some amount of time, until he figures out what to do next.
1: Yeah, and and that credit card trail, it's not as fast as it is present
0: day. No, nothing's digital back then. Everything's paper, so it's got to be mailed to the bank and then to the... Uh, to the Federal Reserve in that district of the country. And, and when you there's a lot of ways. a credit
1: card, it still had to go in that handheld machine that, that ch- rolled across. Yes. I was and just about to ask that. That, yeah. that you know, very archaic
0: Yeah, it, so it took machine, some time. Yeah. And that's one reason, what Frank Abagnale did in the 60s and 70s could never be accomplished today right. because of that. Because of the lack of, uh, because we were in a digital world yet.
2: You charge my credit card, it pops up on my phone exactly. in three seconds. Yeah,
0: that didn't happen yet. Okay, so then we get to a day where Frank is doing what he's been doing. He's trying to figure out a way to make a dishonest day's pay, and he sees an airline pilot climb out of a taxi cab on the streets of New York and he's got his co-pilot with him and a couple of stewardesses and it occurs to Frank, I bet it would be a lot easier for me to get away to wherever I want to go and to cast checks in whatever city I find myself in if I'm dressed as an airline pilot because these guys command respect. Everybody opens the door and gets out of the way and tips their cap. Mm -hmm. I want to be one of those guys. So without getting into the weeds about how he acquired a pilot's uniform, he does. He tells a story about being a young pilot who. Has lost his. They direct him to a uniform shop in town. He gets the uniform. He goes to the airport and steals the Pan Am paraphernalia that he needs. The wings to clip on his jacket. And
2: so that's the airline he has. He flies
0: Pan, Pan Am. Am. Okay. Yeah.
2: Which no longer exists.
0: Which no longer exists. It has been defunct for... Since 91. I looked it up. 91 was the last time Pan Am flew an airplane. But this is the 60s and they were the biggest baddest airline in the world back then. And he never flew on Pan Am. What, what you could do was you could deadhead. If you were an airline pilot and you told the person at the ticket counter that you're a, you're a pilot and I need to get to Denver right away, well, all the airlines had an agreement where other pilots could jump into the extra seat in the cockpit, a little fold-out temporary seat and they would fly you for free to that destination as long as it was for work as long as you had to be there to catch a flight mm-hmm. to fly your plane somewhere else and frank figured this out and so that's how he
2: so he wasn't flying perpetrated this
0: scam he was no and he would never fly on his own airline and that was one of the reasons he first of all he didn't want to get into a conversation with another pan-am pilot
1: right yeah, yeah that's first gonna be of all awkward. it's not his airline
0: Yeah. Because he's
1: not even employee. (laughs)
0: pilot. But uh, he would never be asked to take over because he's not an employee insurance purposes. You're never going to ask him to do anything. Right. But he did learn a lot of the lingo sitting in these cockpits. And, you know, that's his favorite story to tell. Soon Frank would make fake uh, fake ID cards. He would eventually make uh, phony payroll checks using, among, among other things, the decals from model kits he would get from toy stores. That had the Pan Am logo on them, so he would cut off the little logo and slap it on his ID instead of building the model airplane, and Mm -hmm. apparently that worked at the time. According to Frank, he spent five years using this scam to fly all around the world. He hung over $2 million in phony paper checks, completely getting away with it at hotels, airlines, airports, you name it. Now, Frank always said that he never robbed or flim flammed individuals, mom and pop stores. It was always the big corporate guys with the insurance because he didn't, he wasn't
3: that kind of person. Hang on to that.
0: Frank eventually had a close call while in his pilot's uniform, barely escaped from the authorities. Somebody figured out that he wasn't who he was supposed to be, but before he could get into any trouble, he'd gotten out of it. Somebody. The wrong person at the police office believed his ID and said, yeah, this is ridiculous. You can go. So before the FBI ever got involved, he'd already gotten away once. But now Frank is a little iffy about continuing the roost with the pilot's uniform. So he moves to Atlanta. He lied on the application for his apartment. He's got plenty of money now with all these scams he's been pulling. So he's going to take a year off. Move into this singles apartment complex in the Atlanta area, but on the application he wrote down that he is a medical doctor, thinking it doesn't matter what he is because he's just going to live in his apartment on somebody else's money for a year. Mm -hmm. Well, that one comes back to bite him shortly because it turns out that one of his neighbors is a doctor, also a pediatrician, wants Frank to come and visit the the new hospital that's just opening down the street. Long story short, Frank ends up working there for a year as a pediatrician, resident in the ER. But he's been told, you don't ever have to do anything. You don't have a license to operate in this city but or in this state. But the administrator is saying, I've got to have somebody who is officially a medical doctor so we can open the hospital. All you have to do is just hang out and be the doctor. I've got interns running around. They're going to do all the work for you. But I need a doctor on staff. You're my guy. So he, he does it for a year and makes a bunch of money not doing anything. You can see... Scenes in the film where he's trying not to vomit because he really has a, a weak stomach when it comes to blood.
2: Yeah, he's not a doctor.
0: Not a doctor. Just like Kelly. Yeah. So, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You must do this all the time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Frank faked out seven interns, 40 nurses, a dozen members of the support staff. And what he did was, and he admitted it in the book, he pretended to be just a buffoon when it came to the medical field itself. Like maybe he just backed his way through medical school and he was really more of an administrative guy than a medical practitioner. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he got away with it, Frank says, for almost a year. But just about the time his lease expired, he started to feel like the heat was on him. Somebody had figured out that maybe he wasn't who he said he was supposed to be. So Frank hit the road again. This time, He moved to Louisiana. Another long story short, he bumps into somebody who knows somebody who's a lawyer. And Frank says he can't resist the temptation to tell them that he is a lawyer as well, even though, of course, he is not. If this guy tries to pass himself off as a mediocre journalist later in this story, we will have
2: <laughs> three the whole three. triumvirate. I wish I could just tell some lies. And go, <laughs> not really tell some lies. I wish I could just be like, "Oh, I'm a lawyer. Well, <laughs> give it a going, shot. It worked for this guy. It's going to school three days a week.
0: Um, so what Frank decided that he would do, since he'd already created a fake pilot's license and a fake FAA license, he figured, "Ah, how hard could it be to fake transcripts from, I don't know, let's say Harvard Law School And so he did that. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Harvard. I mean, he couldn't even just pick, you know. I know. The ego wouldn't let him pick anything I think
0: that was it, exactly. (laughs) So uh, with that hurdle cleared, the 18-year-old high school dropout, on his third try, passed the Louisiana State Bar and was eventually appointed an assistant district attorney for the state of Louisiana.
1: Now, the state of Louisiana, (laughs) Mm -hmm. when they found this out,
0: That's in the second half of today's episode. Did
1: they change their (laughs) test?
0: Well, no, but it turns out they didn't have to.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. That's
2: what I was saying. You know, Louisiana, this is a random state to pick to want to be a lawyer Mm because their legal system's weird.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's not, it's,
2: it's got its own, like, like
1: some, like, I think you have to go to an extra year of law school in Louisiana. Could be. So is it, okay. So, cause some things are a little bit different in Louisiana than mm-hmm. other places. They they don't have counties. They have parishes. Right? Yeah, they've got something weird with their legal system. Yes. But, and so also the legal mm-hmm. system. Is there. Is there something weird with their medical system too? Or Well, he was medical system Medi- Well, that was in Atlanta. Georgia, but I'm talking about just, just oh, for yeah. my sake in Louisiana. Yeah, I don't is know. It I don't know. It different? I don't Maybe remember. so. But. So they actually have more requirements. Me over here talking, I've to, been
2: to Louisiana like once in my and life. And he's
1: able, but he's able to, with them having even more requirements, he's able to pass this bar. Yep. On
0: his third try. On his- after two weeks of studying. Yeah. So, Katie, it can't be that hard. So study for a couple of weeks when it comes to bar time for you and you should be just fine.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's what they recommend.
0: Yeah. So Frank was content with his ruse, he said, until he saw a newspaper ad for a summer sociology professor at the University of Utah. At which point Frank decided that he would make himself a fake uh, set of transcripts and a diploma from Columbia University in New York City and hand himself a sociology degree. Okay. So Frank taught the class he explained by simply staying one chapter ahead of his students in the textbook.
3: That's all you really got to (laughs) do. That's what he said. Then, so then you get some smart ass student who comes in with all the material
2: read.
0: Yeah. Mr. Abignale, I don't think that's correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's what happened because eventually on the West Coast, Frank diverted his, uh, he, he reverted to the Pan Am paycheck scheme. Oh. So he, he's back in the uniform, cashing the checks. Uh, Frank wrote in the book that no 49er ever struck it richer in the hills of California than I did. Again, this modest young fellow. Mm -hmm. So he's hiding thousands and thousands of dollars in safe deposit boxes at various banks along the West Coast as he cashes these checks just in case he has to make a run for it. He doesn't want to get caught with all his money in one bag, so he's stashing it at banks around the area. Frank says that it was during this time that he really became an expert about the checks and what all of the numbers on the bottom of checks meant and routing numbers and Federal Reserve branches. And there's a brief explanation in in the film, but there's a way to make sure that if you write a check in California, that it has to go to the Federal Reserve all the way across the country in New York before it is discovered to be a bogus check. And that adds a week to your time to get away because again, we're talking about before digital transfer of information was possible. So, as long as you could outrun the mailman, you were okay, at least for some length of time. And this is where Frank became an expert enough at it that he knew how to work the system. It was here in the story that Frank fell in love with a woman and got engaged to be married, eventually falling for her so hard that he decided to tell her the truth about his nefarious life.
2: I feel like this is where the story goes down.
0: Well, in the movie version he sneaks out of the window at the rehearsal dinner
3: mm-hmm.
0: or the engagement party and escapes just before Tom Hanks's uh FBI agent Hanratty, I think is his name, in the film gets there and hauls him off to jail. And that happened uh in the book version what happens is that Frank tells his fiance the truth and they're going to meet up in a couple of hours somewhere back at the house. And when he gets there, there's three or four police cars in front of the house, and he knows that she has given him away. And so he leaves off to Vegas this time, where Frank, in his own words, took several casinos legally for $39,000, even though he'd never gambled before and didn't understand the games, including craps or uh, backgammon. Not backgammon, baccarat.
2: Beginner's luck is real.
0: I guess so. And he was also scattering the Las Vegas area with phony checks this whole time. Back in Chicago next, he ran a bank scam that netted himself $40,000, wrote another $38,000 worth of bad checks in Hawaii, and then went back to New York City. By 1967, Frank was comfortable enough to take his criminal enterprise to Mexico and then London and then Paris. Now back in the States again, one last time, Frank dressed as a security guard at a branch of a bank inside the airport in Boston and made off of $62,000 and actually got two Missouri, I'm sorry, two Massachusetts state troopers to help him load his loot into the car that he had stolen to
3: leave with it. With it.
0: And I'm skipping over the story about him taking the college co-eds to Europe. I'm skipping over where he uh, screws the prostitute, pun intended, out of $1,400. but Frank made it a point to tell that story when he was on the Johnny Carson show in April of 1978, and if you want to hear it in its entirety, that's one good place you can go hear it. You can watch it on YouTube. I did. It's hard to watch. Mm. I used to love Carson. Carson, just live interviews in general, shows like that, just, I get this nervousness, like, like a light's going to fall on somebody's head. I know it's live on tape, but I just, any kind of live thing like that makes me nervous.
2: Have you been drinking your coffee still? That sounds like anxiety, Scott.
0: Oh, uh, I am doing the decaf. Yeah, the decaf tea. Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe you should... Maybe you can retry watching.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe I could do that over again. Uh, eventually, in 1969, Frank finds himself a free man in France and decides he'd, he's had enough of this criminal life. He's through running around. He's going to settle in a remote town in France close to where his mother was from. But... According to Frank's book version of his life, it's not very long before the cops grab him, figure out who he is. Uh, He spends a year in, I'm sorry, he spends six months in a jail in Paris, six months in a jail in Sweden. And then the FBI shows up to take him back to the United States. And that is where, as you can see in the movie, he escapes through the toilet in his airplane and runs across the runway tarmac as the plane is taxiing to the gate and escapes again. Now, everything that I have told you so far today is the absolute truth, according to Frank Abagnale Jr. But as savvy and persuasive as Frank Abagnale Jr. was, he did not live in a vacuum. His crimes affected others, and eventually those others started to speak up about what they saw on national TV, for example. Uh, the game show to tell the truth which Frank Abagnale appeared on in 77 he was on the Carson show four times beginning in 1978 he was on the Today Show a young Tom Brokaw interviewed him once Uh, one of the times that he was on the Carson show he shared the couch with Donnie and Marie uh, he was on the Phil Donahue show, Mike Douglas, Katie. will explain that to you later. Those are two big daytime talk <laughs> shows of the era, right?
2: <laughs> I really have no idea.
0: <laughs> I'm going to do that to her once every single time from now on until the end of time. Uh, by 1980, Frank
3: Abagnale had a best-selling book that was out, telling this
0: larger-than-life, ridiculous story again, and. I've got to know right now, did I sell you guys this story? Don't be ashamed to say that I did because an entire generation of Americans has bought this story, but I'm about to tell you that about 85% of everything that I've just told you, everything you've ever heard from Frank Abagnale Jr. is a load of horseshit. Um, that doesn't surprise me. And we will tell you that side of the story after we hear from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you in part by A&W Outdoor Services. You know, they're located right here in Cherokee County, and I called Alan myself just a few weeks ago, and he and his crew came out to my house, pressure washed the whole thing. It looks brand new. Well, as brand new as my house can possibly look after 25 years. But all I did was call Alan at 256-706-7964. He and the guys showed up and cleaned up everything. It looked fantastic. The pollen has fallen a little bit since then. So if you haven't done this already, now is the perfect time to call Alan and a and Outdoor Services at 256-706-706. 7964 and let them do for you what they've already done for me. It's
1: time to plan your best vacation ever right here in Cherokee County, Alabama. Many outdoor adventures await wet a hook in beautiful
2: Weiss Lake, swing away at Cherokee Pines Golf Club, climb to the best view around at Cherokee Rock Village, hike the Little River Canyon National Preserve, take a day's long splash at Pirates Bay Water Park, and much, much more.
0: The Cherokee County Chamber of Commerce and Tourism has a full list of recommended lodging facilities, RV sites, and campgrounds. And they're all set up to suit your vacation needs, whatever they may be.
1: So come see us from wherever you are. And if you already live right here in lovely Cherokee County, plan your summer 2023 staycation with the chamber by visiting cherokee-chamber.org.
2: Are you in the market for a full-time Weiss Lake home or recreational lot? Let Trini Davis and Elizabeth Powell put their all-star property group at Keller Williams Realty to work for you. Trini and Elizabeth are locals themselves, so they know the Weiss Lake area and with over 40 years of experience, their professional listing and buying agents, talented home stagers and photographers, and specialized marketing team will work to make your lakefront dreams come true. Check out the Keller Williams team on Facebook at All-Star Property Rome. You can also visit at all-star property Rome to browse their images on Instagram or give them a call at 706-844-7493. That's the all-star property group with Keller Williams Realty at 706-844-7493. You can hit pause, call them now and make your Weiss Lake dreams a reality. And thank you to all of our wonderful sponsors. Okay, Scott, so now that you've busted all our bubbles, Mm -hmm. where do we go from here?
0: The bubble busting is about to continue. So, in the group text earlier this week, I asked you guys who has seen this movie, figuring that Katie probably hadn't, but Katie has seen.
2: One of the movies I've seen.
0: Catch me if you can. Not that Katie does a bad job of watching movies, or really, I really shouldn't make fun of anybody who hasn't seen the movies that I have, because nobody has as much time to sit around at home and watch movies as I do. So, that's not fair to anybody, is it?
2: Valid points.
3: (laughs) Anyway, Katie
0: admitted that she has seen the movie. Kelly, you've seen it too. It's just been a while, right? I watched it over the weekend.
1: Yeah, correct. I I saw it in the theater um, when it was, whatever year it came out. 2002. Yeah. So that's been, that was the last time I saw it.
0: Okay. So as I mentioned before the break, Frank Abagnale Jr.'s uh, celebrity began on an episode of an old game show that maybe you've heard of, To Tell the Truth. It had been on the air for 20 years.
1: I've never heard of it. In
0: 1970, it had been on the air for 20 years. It was canceled not long after this, not because of anything that Frank Abagnale did. It just, it had run its course. Uh, Former baseball player, Joe Gargiola, was the host of the show. And the premise is basically three people come out. They all claim to be the same person. There's a panel of B-list celebrities on the downslide. They got nothing else to do. So they're the celebrity panel on to tell the truth. Uh, On the day in... That we're referring to, one of the panelists was Nipsey Russell, the black comedian. You remember Nipsey Russell? He was on Laugh-In and Carol Burnett, some other shows. And then there were two guys, uh, the other two people I didn't recognize, and I've got their names in my notes somewhere, but two celebrities on their way out who had nothing else going on that day. So they listened to these three people all try to convince them that they are Frank Abagnale Jr., And at the end of the show, Frank has fooled all three of them. He wins the $500 prize the first time in his life, his life of crime has ever gotten him honest gains, 500 bucks in his
3: pocket for fooling the panel. And that's
0: when everything sort of changes for Frank. He's already converted his life of crime into a security consulting business. He's already giving speeches to chambers of commerce and he's telling his Wild cockamamie story that is growing every time he tells it. He's getting better and better at telling and packaging and convincing people that this story is true. He's a con man, remember? So this is what he does. By 1978, he has been asked to come on the Johnny Carson
3: show for the first of at least four times.
0: But I've got to tell you the title of a book that came out in 2020 that is going to be the focus of the rest of the second half of this episode. It is called The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Catching the Truth While We Can by a guy named Alan Logan. And what happened was this all started, this effort to tell the true story about what Frank Abagnale had and had not done started after the game show appearance in 77 and the Carson show in 78. In 1978, you could go from Nobody to a celebrity overnight simply by sitting down on the couch beside Johnny Carson on his show. 15 million people watch the show every night. It's how Jerry Seinfeld was discovered. Uh, Stephen Wright, uh, Robert Schimmel, a lot of comedians especially from the 80s and 90s got their start. If, 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 Jerry, or if, if Johnny let you on the show, you became a celebrity overnight, and that's what happened to Abagnale. So that's how he ended up on the Today Show and the Phil Donahue show and the Mike Douglas show. And it's eventually, two years later, how this same story that he's been telling since nineteen seventy seven, this version of his life, is that's why it's so similar to the to the movie, because that's what becomes the book in nineteen eighty. And then that's basically what they used to get the screenplay jump started, mm-hmm. you know, twelve years later.
3: But now, according to Alan Logan
0: in his book, perhaps Abagnale's best con job was the story that he'd been selling. That story was the con because most of it wasn't true. According to Logan, in The Greatest Hoax on Earth, Frank's check-writing scheme, while dressed as an airline pilot, actually only took place on 10 verifiable occasions all over a three-month period and not to the tune of $2.5 million dollars. It was for $1,488.
2: A
3: little different.
0: Two versions of the same story, a little bit far apart on the facts. And that's just the first example of many to come when it comes to Frank Abagnale's version of the facts because they don't match up with what the media reports. They don't match up with law enforcement records, academic institutions, or the public at large. So perhaps a different Mark Twain quote is more appropriate than the one from earlier. How about this? A lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth gets its shoes on.
1: That is a great saying. That really it's, is. It's so relevant
0: yeah. always. Always.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and very relevant uh Here
0: in Alabama. Yes. Here recently. For sure. Oh, yeah. That's right.
1: (laughs) Just look at the local Alabama news. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what we're talking about. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And whether you believe Frank's version of these facts or Alan Logan's version of the facts, one fact is indisputable. Certainly, it was a different time in the sky in this country. Because back in the 60s and 70s, air travel was still glamorous, luxurious, alluring. And now it's just a pain in the ass. I don't
1: enjoy flying.
0: Flying used to be part of the vacation. No. Mm
1: -hmm. Now
0: it's not. The vacation doesn't stop until you walk out of that fucking airport.
1: Exactly. Wherever
0: you're going. At least not for me.
1: Have you ever flown on a plane that still had the ashtrays in it? Oh, yeah, sure. I have. You're on a 737.
0: You've probably still got ashtrays. And I'm
1: very concerned every time I'm on a plane that still has the ashtrays.
0: And that was a thing for a long time.
1: Anyways, I, back I'm when Frank thinking, was flying, this, you could
0: smoke on airplanes. This I'll is very
1: you. dated. This plane is very dated, but
3: you
0: know <laughs> that's okay. All right. So anyway, let's get to the total unraveling of Frank Abagnale's story. So like I said earlier, Frank started telling his wild, crazy version of the story, his story of the life of crime. After he moved to Houston around 1976, he started speaking to small groups for appearance fees. And he earned money by telling the story. The first uh, honest money Frank had won, like I told you, was that 500 bucks for fooling the panel on to tell the truth. Oh, and the other, uh, it was Nipsey Russell, Peggy Cass, an elderly lady, older lady who had been a TV star and movie star in the 50s and 60s. And a guy named Bill Cullen who was on some TV show for like five years. I don't know. And then never did anything else. You
3: know?
0: So kind of like Michael Richards, he had one big comedy hit show and then poof, he's gone. Kramer.
1: Oh, okay. I was like, who? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Kramer. Yeah. Kramer yeah.
0: had his one show and then he was one and done. He's sitting back living off his residuals.
1: If yeah. he's getting
0: them, i sure he's I mean, doing that's
2: fine. what the SAG right? about yeah. right now.
0: I don't think the Seinfeld crew got shortchanged on the residuals back in the day. I know Jerry didn't. <laughs> Maybe not the rest of them either. Yeah. Um, but Abignail had gotten on the radar in the entertainment world, by giving that story to chambers of commerce, all starting in Houston, one of the lies that he liked to tell back in those days was that the movie rights had already been secured and Dustin Hoffman was going to play him in the film. This was before the book even came out in 1980. He began telling that story in the mid to late 70s. By 1977, Abagnale had written out an entire uh, dossier, a brochure that he handed out to potential uh, customers. It was 16 pages long. It acted as an advertising form. Um, And it told a version of his stories and had some photos that he claimed were taken when he was in these various, when he was the professor or the the doctor or whatever. There was a local reporter in Houston named Stan Redding who would go on to become the co-author of the 1980 book Catch Me If You Can. And Redding would send... PR releases to papers in the area where Frank was about to give a speech a couple of days before to drum up extra business to go and sit and listen to Frank give his speech. So by the end of 77, Frank's traveling all over the country. And then in 78, when he's on the Carson show, that was the apex for, for Abignail. He finally had gone from a nobody to a somebody literally overnight, which happened with Carson. So finally, life's uh, the, the life of crime that Frank had been living, however extensive or not it had actually been, was making him some money. But unfortunately for Frank, there was a family in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, who saw him on The Tonight Show and knew who he was, knew who he had been all along and figured that he probably hadn't changed. Her name was Paula Parks, and she was a Delta flight attendant. Back in
3: 69, she met Frank. Frank ended up stalking her,
0: finding out her work schedule and standing in an airport in Charlotte or Miami or Houston. When she would get off the plane, he would be standing there waiting on her, pretending it was a coincidence. But she figured out later that he had used his airline contacts to figure out her work schedule.
1: That's creepy. Yeah,
0: nope. For one extended period while she was away, she didn't live with her parents, but she would come home and visit with her parents. He had met her parents on one visit before she realized what a creep he was. So while she's flying around the country doing her job, he goes back to Baton Rouge, reintroduces himself to her parents, and the next time she hears from Frank, he is staying with her parents, sleeping in her bedroom. Oh. No. That's next level. Oh, and dating, her, uh, dating an old friend from high school.
1: That's, that's next level. Yes. Why was he so obsessed with her?
0: He just was. He was.
1: Did he ever? His say, version
0: of the story is that he fell in love, right, and had to sneak out when the girl when he gave up the story to the girl and she turned him into the FBI. The facts are this: he oh, was so never they engaged. They were
1: never engaged. No,
0: she never even dated the guy. Oh my gosh. Wow. His version and the real version, as yeah. discovered by not mediocre journalists. That
1: is quite very different. different. Yeah. Oh my. Very goodness.
0: different. And it turns out, too, that Frank, while uh, he was in the embrace of the Parks family, the parents anyway, they couldn't understand why their daughter didn't like him. Oh, he's, honey, he's such a terrific guy. Come home and hang out with us. We're all about to go to dinner. Frank's taking us out to dinner as a way to show us his thanks. Guess whose money Frank was paying for that dinner with? Mr. Parks' money. He was, he had lifted the checkbook out of the drawer and pulled a couple of checks off the back and cashed them. And so he was paying for, He was showing his appreciation for their hospitality
3: with more of their hospitality. Yeah. What a little shit. What a little shit. How old is he at this time? He is uh, 21. Mm. Yeah. Born in 48.
0: Yeah. 21 years old and 69. So remember I told you guys the story that Frank told about the Massachusetts state troopers helping him steal the money. He told that story on the Carson show on one of his first two visits. And there was a reporter in San Francisco named Stephen Hall who said, bullshit. I'll bet I can. I bet I can confirm or deny that story really quickly. And so he made a few phone calls. That had never happened. There wasn't even a bank branch in the
3: airport. Two days later, Stephen Hall's uh, headline story, uh, the the headline of his story read, Johnny Carson Gets Conned. Mm.
0: Um, Abagnale had made up the entire story. Frank's story about being a pediatric resident at a hospital in Georgia, impossible. The hospital had never heard of an alias, of the alias that Frank claimed that he used. I think it was Conrad, doesn't matter. And besides, at the time of Frank's claims, the hospital didn't even have resident physicians on the staff. The AG's office in Louisiana did not hire Frank or whatever name he used and did not offer the bar exam three times in the time span that Frank claimed that he had taken it.
2: To say it's usually only offered twice a year.
0: Every six months. He would it would take him thirteen months to have taken it three times, and he claimed to have only been in the office for a year practicing law with his law degree with his state bar examination mm-hmm. most of the time. So, so that's bullshit. So I didn't
1: what even think he, about that at the time. What yeah. is he doing during all this time?
0: He's in jail. Frank's in jail this whole time.
1: That he's claiming to do yes. all of these things. almost
0: the entirety of the time from 1964 until 1973. There's a timeline I'll show you that you can pull up and look at. Most of this time, most of this 10-year period, Frank is incarcerated. Where? In New York. For what? Bouncing checks.
3: So
1: he just has a lot of time on his hands and he just makes up this story to Correct. publish a book.
0: Yeah, there are, there are little bits and pieces. He did... Uh, make some... He did get a pilot's uniform. There's no confirmation that he ever actually flew Deadhead on one single flight, much less for uh, three million miles all around the world, which is... Like, that's like 80 trips around the globe. But
1: how is he getting to these airports when she is... Is He's flying somehow because well, he's stalking this lady.
0: One of the periods when he is not in jail. Mm-hmm. There's a one-year period. He's in between. He's gotten out on his first batch of 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 jail time. Okay. And before he goes back to jail again is this period when he is harassing the Parks family in Baton Rouge. The facts are that it is during this time that he is in Baton Rouge harassing the Parks family that he is arrested again for some of the other things that he's been doing. And then he goes back to jail for Two or three years.
1: Okay, so he he is out and,
3: in fact, was stalking her.
0: There was so a time. So her yeah, that, story yes, is true. Yes, that's right.
3: Okay. But he wasn't out for long. Okay, so I told you that the, 80s, the
0: AG's office had said, no way, this guy never worked for us. Uh, airlines like Pan Am and Delta denied having ever been taken for the millions that Frank claimed. And Frank was always, anytime he was confronted with these alternate realities, he would say, oh, well, of course, you're not going to say anything. They're embarrassed. Wouldn't tell you that I stole all that money from them. Right. So the story about what a comment Frank Abagnale Jr. was really was. It was beginning to affect his business. And his business was the security. Consulting and the speaking engagements, telling his story. So, if all of a sudden his story is a bunch of bullshit, I'm out of business. He didn't want, it. so he started canceling shows. Anytime he he eventually stopped doing college campuses altogether. And that was a very lucrative business in the sixties and seventies for public speakers. So he stopped doing campus gigs altogether because it was on a college campus where the first sniffs about the actual facts of his case had started. Oh, and I told you he was never the uh, college professor, right? And one of the promotional photos that's in that dossier, that 16-page document that he hands out to potential customers, there's a picture of him sitting at a desk somewhere, supposedly while he's at BYU in 1969, and there's a can of Mr. Pibb sitting on the desk beside him. And Mr. Pibb didn't exist until 1972. Somebody figured that out.
3: The devil's in the
0: details. Yep. Uh, There was another claim that Frank had escaped from the heavily secured federal prison in Atlanta, which never happened.
3: And so largely after all of this
0: blew over, there were no consequences for Frank. He went right back to doing what he was doing. Uh, By 1979, Frank is speaking nationwide again, billing himself as the Skyway Man in his promotional literature and advertising Uh, in his new spiel. And remember, he knows the books coming out in 1980. Now what he tells people Frank does is that he never robbed anybody except reputable big businesses with insurance so that he wouldn't have to worry about his conscience. Wouldn't let him steal from mom and dad. Right. Mm -hmm. We already know about the parks family.
1: He's such a liar. And I just Googled this guy. He looks like a big toe. Yeah. (laughs) Look at his, look at his, yeah. Look at his pilot's picture. Look at the, look at that. I mean, you mean he doesn't look
3: like... uh he looks a like big toe. He looks, he looks like, like the, a big toe.
0: He looks like the wrestler who always loses. Like the the sacred, we're going to throw you to Ric Flair this week. or
1: He looks
2: nothing Hogan's like Leo. I'll just say that. You.
0: Yeah, that's the truth. I
1: was about to say... <laughs> Or Dustin Hoffman. <laughs> or Dustin Hoffman. I was <laughs> I mean, about to say, how did he look
2: out and get played by Leonardo DiCaprio? Yeah. It's
1: because Spielberg. Spiller, loves loves Spielberg, right? and who Hanks?
0: doesn't love Leo? Yeah. Exactly.
2: Like I mean, Edie. I don't know a man who wouldn't want to be well. Played he was by the Leo. he
0: was the young. Leo was young enough then that he could pass for the teenager part yeah, of the story anyway. Good. Yeah.
1: So. Yeah.
0: Okay, so like I said, Frank's had to change his spiel. Now he uh, he never stole from the little man. He claims that he works. Uh, on occasion with the FBI as a consultant. He drops names, he drops uh, uh, the New York Times and uh, other government organizations to lend himself credibility and cloud where it really does not exist. None of it's true. So when Frank is on Phil Donahue and Michael Douglas, Mike Douglas, he is promoting this new version of his story in anticipation of the book coming out because he wants the book to sell. He doesn't want to come off as a as a heel because nobody wants to root for the bad guy you want to feel like the guy the the protagonist of your book is not a bad guy so he's had to re-kajigger his story to help sell books Mm -hmm. oh and one of the other things that he does to help him sell books and here's our alabama connection that i almost forgot about When the book came out, his business really took off, and it took off so much that he had to hire somebody to be his full-time booking agent. And that guy's name was Mark Zinder, Z-I-N-D-E-R. And he was a graduate student at the University of South Alabama in Mobile.
1: Okay. Alabama tie, how about that?
0: As close as I could get. Actually, I've got one more at the end if we have time. Okay. Um, But anyway, so Mark Zinder, he was a guy who already worked for USA South Alabama, that's what we call USA here in Alabama. I mean, we call it USA. Uh, he was already the person who was in charge of booking speakers to come to the campus to entertain or inform the students. So when he stumbled across Abigail, still in his capacity at USA, he pitched himself as a possible full-time employee, which Frank eventually agreed to. Although, uh there were a few times when Frank didn't pay him what he was supposed to or forgot about an agreement that they had made about a bonus. I'm
1: just shocked.
0: So eventually Mark Zender is doing all of Frank's bookings. Uh, he often even traveled with him uh, to speaking engagements and saw him in the company of college co-eds at odd hours, unlikely locations and suspicious circumstances And eventually, sometime in 1979 or 80, Zender would learn, finally, that Frank had been married since 1976, but he didn't let that stop him from hanging out with the co-eds when he went on these speaking engagements.
2: Gross. Yeah.
0: Zender said that after the book came out, Frank was livid that on the back, on the dust jacket, there included a short biography of him in which he was identified as married. And so... Frank went out and got decals with the price of the book on them and slapped them over that portion of the book so that the college co-eds wouldn't find out that he was married.
1: Wow. Also gross.
3: How old is he at this time? Abignale. Yeah. Uh, he was this born in
0: 48,
3: so he's 30. Early 30s. It's not... He's not... But it's just... It's just... He's, he's a terrible person.
0: I, I don't think you'd get any pushback from anybody in this room on that. Ugh. And along the way, uh, among the other things that Frank did, like I said, he, he tried to screw uh, Zender out of a portion of his salary, a promised performance bonus, and possibly his fiance. Oh. By the late 1990s, Frank was making $15,000 per speaking engagement. Remember, this is still before the book has come out. His new career takes off after the book in eighty. I'm sorry, the movie, the movie doesn't come out until 2002. So he's halfway between the book and the movie and he's doing
3: really well financially.
0: So a lot of the 2002 film Catch Me If You Can in reality is uh, Frank Sten as a fake airline pilot didn't last nearly as long as the the movie and the book play out. Like I said, it was a few months. It was $1,488. And those events didn't actually happen until after he got back from prison in Europe. He spent uh, several months in a French prison, several months in a Swedish prison. And that is kind of where uh, the book, I'm sorry, the movie begins. So we see uh, Hanratty, Tom Hanks' character, escorting Frank, played by Leo DiCaprio, into a jet. He's going to bring him back to the U.S., He's being extradited to the United States. And that is the scene where he jumps into the men's room. And because he's a pilot, right, he knows how to take the toilet apart. And he climbs under the toilet down into the fuselage. And as the plane is taxiing across the runway after landing, he jumps down on the landing gear and runs across the runway and escapes. Mm.
1: And so the truth, the actual truth.
0: The truth is that's impossible.
1: Did not come out until after the movie,
0: right? Some of it did after the book. Some of it did before the book. Okay. But there's never been enough of a blowback from the truth. It's been so much time now that he's just like the, he's an elder statesman. He's a, he's a spokesman for AARP today. What? Yeah. That's wild. He has, he has spoken uh, at Google's version of TED Talks in the last (laughs) few years.
1: What does he talk about
0: uh, security issues digital the digital age of security, even though he does no first hand <laughs> knowledge of any of that because he he was just making checks with airplane decals on them when he was a criminal but just one little funny story about how we know this didn't happen when when the movie came out in o two in that opening scene where he escapes through the fuselage and down in through the landing gear. Well, pilots started to go. Wait a minute! That's a seven hundred seven or a DC eight or whatever it was supposed to be at the time. It was impossible to get from there to there in that airplane, and they knew that. So Abagnale had to start telling everybody, "Oh, yeah, that's just something that Steven Spielberg made up for dramatic purposes for the movie, despite the fact that in his original nineteen eighty book, that's exactly how he describes what him is, getting out of that airplane."
1: What is did Spielberg say to this?
0: I don't Spielberg. Like, I don't give it. Down. Idiot. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, he's already cashing them checks. Yeah, he's already I mean, got we've his money. made money off you. Bye-bye.
0: Yeah. Bye. yeah. Yeah, I think that movie, it was one of the biggest movies of 2002. I think it paid for itself uh in just a couple of weeks and made a bunch of money worldwide. I mean, Tom Hanks and DiCaprio and It was Spielberg. a really good movie. Yeah, it was not and, bad. and
1: Leo, he's got this reputation for playing these kinds of folks. Like, he's mm-hmm. played this guy He's played the Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh,
0: You know. Shutter Island. Yeah. Strange yeah. bird.
3: Yeah. just Good for him. Yeah.
0: Um... After the book came out, Abagnale was forced to admit the story about how the escape from the plane was reconfigured. One of the people that he blamed for that in the book now is the guy who helped him write it, Stan Mm. Redding. He's been dead for 15 years. Convenient. So blame it on that guy. Uh, Frank was sentenced to 10 years in prison in 1971, but he was out of prison by 1974. That was for his second batch of, that was for the 10 checks that we know about that he tried to cash while he was in a pilot's uniform. Uh, And we we're not even going to tell you about the one summer that he spent in Houston, hiding out as a counselor at a kid's summer camp to keep the authorities away from him. Uh, And by, uh, by the way, while he was there, he used the camp director's credit card to put gas in his vehicle, among other thieving acts. Still, somehow, between 1974, when Frank got out of prison in 1977, when the story begins with To Tell the Truth and all this rise to fame, Frank turned his life around. He had stopped hiding in the shadows, and now he was seeking the spotlight. He opened the security consulting business. Somehow, he ended up on the TV shows, the game show, Carson, despite the enduring basic falsehood of everything that he was saying.
1: He's literally creating problems and then saying his security company can solve them. Is that what he does? Yeah. I mean
0: Yeah, isn't there a Bugs Bunny cartoon where Daffy uh lets something go in Porky's Porky Pig's house and then knocks on the door and pretends to be a traveling salesman to (laughs) sell him what whatever it is he'll need to get rid of that rodent. Yeah. And like it's cat to get rid of the mouse, and then it's mm -hmm. a dog to get rid of the cat, and then it's a a lion to get rid of the dog. It's never ending cycle. (laughs) Something like that. Um, According to our Alabama connection, remember Mark uh, Zender, the story that made it into the movie was pretty much identical to the version of the story Abagnale had been telling on the speaking tour around the country since 1977. After the film, a couple of other discrepancies ended up with Abagnale claiming that he never had anything whatsoever to do with the film itself, even though there are pictures in the bonus DVD edition of him uh, canoodling around with DiCaprio and Hanks and Spielberg on the set. They're Ooh. online too. You've and online. there's even, a, he has a cameo in the fucking movie. <laughs> Abigail does. <laughs> At one point when uh, DiCaprio is being taken out of the police station into a car in chains, uh, Abigail himself plays the French police officer who is escorting him to the car. So not a speaking part, but mm-hmm. he's there. You can't miss that. Glob of white hair when you see it again.
1: And that toe head.
0: And it that huge giant big big toe of a head. Big toe head. Yeah. Well, that's never going to leave me, no matter what. Right? <laughs> Gosh! <laughs> Look, guys, I'm
1: not afraid of a lie. He's I, not afraid no. to tell a lie,
0: no matter how not big afraid it is. of the consequences. No,
1: lie. he'll just change change it up. Yeah,
0: I yeah. could I could go on telling you examples about how the movie and the book and real life do not. Compute all afternoon. We could do this until nightfall, but I'm not.
1: So, but what we need to know is the movie is complete and utter fairy tale.
0: Almost completely.
1: And the, the book...
0: Almost completely the is same.
1: fairy tale. The book yeah. that is factual came out in 2020. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And what's it called again?
0: I'm scrolling back up now. Okay, sorry. No, it's all right. It's uh, The Greatest Hoax on Earth. I'm not there yet, but that sounds right. The greatest hoax on earth, catching truth while we can, by Alan C. Logan.
1: Okay, that's everybody's homework. Yeah, let's read that. Pretty interesting.
0: Mm. Uh, one last thing, and we will uh, close up shop today. If I can find it again, since you made me scroll, now I'm mm. completely lost. Somebody it's make that fun of my tiny phone. Docs. <laughs> it's that tiny phone. So okay. So after the movie came out in '02, there ends up being a Broadway musical about this. Catch Me If You Can is the title of the Broadway musical which brings us to our second and final Alabama connection of today's episode. An actor named Norbert Leo Butz is a Missouri native who got his Bachelor, I'm sorry, got his Master's of Fine Arts from the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa and won the Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical for his portrayal of Frank Abagnale in the Broadway version of this story.
3: Well, good for him.
0: He is one of only two actors in the history of Broadway to have won the Best Actor in a Musical Award twice
1: good for him he's, he's very talented Did you guys ever see
0: bloodline on netflix so, i saw like so an episode or two key of it. west thing yeah butts was in that okay. and he is now uh one of the co-stars of the new justified series that's available on fx and hulu if you're into Raylan givens and yeah. federal marshals uh he's he he has a role in that film as well okay you'll recognize him anyway guys that's the truth or not about Frank Abagnale, I, I, who the hell knows at this point? I'm totally confused, but that's oh what I came gosh. up with today.
1: I can't believe he's a spokesman for the AARP.
0: I don't think the AARP can.
1: I can't anymore. I can't believe that people would get him to be a spokesman. Like you're going to speak on behalf of us because everything you say is a lie. Yeah.
0: yeah. I don't, so that's really. I don't really know how. Odd to me. Anybody can justify. Doing that, but I guess there's just so many versions of the same story told that the truth gets lost in with the fiction. And
1: people love the good story. Yeah. More and than he the figured truth.
0: out a way to make a living off of one good story.
1: Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Well, Scott, you did a fantastic job this week. My brain Thank hurts. You. Thank you so much. <laughs> your eyes hurt from Ugh. that tiny little phone. Yep. <laughs>
0: That's not helping anything. You don't have yeah. your glasses. <laughs> I can't see with them or without them. Okay.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, check us out on our website. Uh what? Leave us a five star rating on Apple say iTunes. Say something Apple nice podcast. about us. Yeah, say something nice. Pay it forward. Yeah. Go to Spotify for podcasters and start your own podcast if you want to. We'll listen to you.
0: Anybody else have anything they want to talk about? Not me. Is that it? Are we done? We're done. Good night, everybody.